Hey, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Seacoast. Take out your outline if you'd like to follow along, take some notes on the message. And if you don't do that, at least take out a Bible. We're going to be studying in our series in 2 Peter. We're going to be actually doing something a little different today. We've covered the first chapter and we had some incredible passages to examine and and to kind of unpack. Uh, And last week, Ryan did a great job helping us unpack the end of chapter 1. And as we pulled up toward the end of chapter 1, as we looked at the flow of the book, we thought, you know something, we have been really giving out a lot of information. We've been teaching some great truths, and you may have some questions. So today, we're going to do a message on all of chapter 1. I want to teach you all of chapter 1. So let me ask you this, how many of you have missed at least one week in the last four weeks? Raise your hand. It's like, Everyone. Okay, okay. Uh, that's kind of life in our culture, it seems like. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to give you a quick review of all of chapter 1. And then we're going to take you into some new truth from that chapter. And then we're going to let you write the second half of the sermon. And you'll see what I mean by that later. As you have a chance to text in questions, and some of you have already been doing this to help us examine the rest of chapter 1. The theme of, this, of, the, of the book, of course, is the live truth. Today, believe it, apply it, trust it, as the big ideas of chapter 1. Well, last week, Pastor Ryan did a great job. He helped us to understand. And look at verse 19 in your Bibles. Just look down at verse 19. Can someone uh, read verse 19 for me? You can? Yeah. See, what I'm really doing is I'm finding out how many of you are actually on Facebook. I can see the little glowing. Okay, yeah. Now, if you have, if you have a Bible on your pad or your iPhone, your smartphone, hold that up. We need some light, right? Yeah, whoa. Okay, someone close the door back there. You're wrecking the illustration. Okay, yeah, here we go. Yeah, close the door, please. Thank you very much. Yeah, so, yeah, because I, I can see the little glowing spots as all of you that have gone high tech are uh, helping yourself out. The rest of us are pretty much left in the dark, aren't we? So let's just continue into God's Word as we study it together. Father God, teach us from your Word. Thanks for how you teach us about the importance of it. And not just knowing it, but living truth. So I really pray this morning as we engage with you, as we listen to you, that you would teach us what it really means to not just know truth, uh, but to be able to live truth. Amen. You know, as we begin the passage this morning, uh, look at verse 19 with me. In fact, I'll help you out a little bit. I'll throw it up onto the screen. Verse 19. Ryan left off last week in an incredible message that challenged my life to really examine why the Scriptures are so important and how we know that they are indeed inspired by God. In the midst of that passage last week in verse 19, Peter says this to us. He says that in light of having this revelation from God made more sure, he says, we are to pay attention, that is, to the Scriptures, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Now, if you could turn off your smartphones for a minute and just kind of blank out the light, 
you know, I think there's nothing more graphic than to experience darkness and to, and to imagine what if I actually had to live my life in darkness. I think one of the consequences of that would be just like when I got out of bed this morning. I got up about 5.45. It was totally dark in the room in the house. When I get out of bed, there's a certain number of things I do. Uh, one of the most important is I start the coffee, especially if I beat Becky out of bed, which is rare, but I did it this morning. So, because we need coffee. Without coffee, the rest of the day is not going to be good, okay? So you need a coffee-empowered sermon as well as a spirit-empowered sermon, okay? But before I even make the coffee, what do I do? I flip on a light. I flip on a light. And you know, when Scripture talks about the importance of light, he says we are to view God's Word as a lamp in a dark place. Because when you're in total darkness probably before you value anything else, you're going to value whatever it is that provides what you see right here, that provides light. And this way, I can finish the sermon. But when you talk about doing mundane things like making coffee, light is helpful, light's important. But when Peter talks about viewing God's Word as a lamp in a dark place... He's not talking about a literal place. He's talking about life. He's talking about the darkness spiritually of trying to live life when you don't know truth. And what we've been learning in the first 11 verses of this chapter are some of these things. That is, we pay attention to it because Scripture is that lamp. He says, no prophecy of Scripture was ever made by an act of human will, but by those moved by the Holy Spirit who spoke and wrote from God. Verse 21. So when we realize that God is not a silent God, God is a God who has spoken. God is a God that wants us to understand the things that are really important to us living life. Let me show you a few of those that were mentioned in the first 11 verses. God wants you to understand. He wants His Word to shine His light on things like truth, on the truth about God, on the truth about not just God, but the truth of Jesus Christ and who He was. Uh, the truth of His grace and the incredible revelation that God no longer is, that God is, God is not a God who is asking us to perform to receive His love. But His love is a gift of grace and His work on the cross as He sent Jesus to die for us and that grace is ours, that unconditional love of God that provides the promise, the absolute promise of eternal life. And last week or two weeks ago, we talked a little bit about how, these, how this concept of grace gives us eternal security. That you can know that you are loved by God in spite of, not because of, but in spite of who you are. We have eternal life by God's grace. But not only do we have eternal life, now we can also live every day knowing that we are forgiven of God, knowing that we can be changed by God, knowing that we can have a, live, a life that is useful. In fact, he says, when you, when you build life the way verses 1 through 11 describe, he says, you will no longer be unfruitful and unuseful, but you can be fruitful and useful for the kingdom of God. And then, like gravy on top of a meal, then he says, and as you do that, you have a more grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a reference to eternal rewards that are actually ours. And we'll answer some questions about those later. That raised a lot of questions. But look at that. 
Through God's Word, we have truth about God, Jesus, grace, eternal life, how to be forgiven, how you can be changed and transformed by Christ and His Spirit that lives in you, how you can be useful and earn eternal rewards. That's an incredible thing. And that is why I believe that he says, when you look at God's revelation, God's revealing of Himself and and of life, God's truth in the Scriptures, you're you're to think of them like this lamp, if you were living in absolute darkness without it. That's the reality. So open your Bibles, and we'll actually bring the lights up now and help you out a little bit. Okay, whoa, that's bright. Okay. Listen to the Word of God. What we're going to do today is do a review of the chapter and then go into some Q&A time. I break this chapter into three big ideas. Uh, Peter's passion, Peter's conviction... And then Peter's challenge to our lives. But I want to kind of take them a little bit out of sequence to build the argument. The first thing I want you to see is buried right in the middle of this chapter in verses 12 to 15. Look at it. Is what I call Peter's passion that this truth really matters. Now listen to the language again. He says, therefore, verse 12, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. And I want to give you the, the, I want to pull out the phrases that he uses in reference to God's truth. He says, you already know it, and that you have been established in it, established in the truth, rooted, grounded in it, which is present with you. Verse 13, and I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, I'm still alive on planet earth, to stir up in you by way of reminder. He says, you know it, you're established in it, I'm still going to remind you of it. And and he says, the reason is, I'm going to someday check out, I'm about to die, my days are coming to a close, and I want to make sure that after my departure, that you can call these things to mind, that you never forget them. See, Peter is saying, the truth that I just taught you in verses 1 through 11 is so important That even if I know you know it, you've heard it before, you even maybe are kind of grounded in it, you you got it, you figured it out, I want to remind you again, and my goal is that you will never, ever forget this, as long as I'm alive and even after I'm gone. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read a paragraph like that, it should cause us to say, wow, I mean, maybe this is pretty important. We'll come back and see why in a minute. Peter had a passion for the fact that God had spoken clearly and given us truth. Secondly, that passion linked to his deep conviction that this truth really is divine. It is from God and therefore can be trusted. Ryan did a great job in verses 16 to 21 last week of of showing us that, so we won't cover that again. But in essence, what we heard was that this truth is different from other religions. This truth is different from other just religious thought. How is it different? It's in, it came in real time, if you want my summary, through a real person with real power. Real time, meaning this was not man-made fables and crazy, clever tales. This was in real time. This is in history. This is rooted in historical events with eyewitnesses that saw a real person named Jesus Christ actually do these things. It came in real time through a real person named Jesus, accompanied with divine power that was obvious. 
It made me think back in Matthew 11, verse 4, if you want to just write the reference, look it up this week. Matthew 11, 4, you know, Jesus uh, had some of the disciples of John the Baptist show up. And they asked Jesus in his early part of his ministry, uh, are you, John wants us to ask you, are you the real thing? Are you really the Son of God come down from heaven? Are you really the Messiah that we've waited on for hundreds of years? And Jesus' response was this. Listen to it. Jesus answered and said, Matthew eleven four, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf now hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. Just tell him that. You see, Jesus knew that his miracles had a purpose. And his miracles had a purpose of, of backing up his claim as to who he was. They saw the miracles that said, you are really, truly the Son of God. The transfiguration that Peter mentions in this passage, in verse 17, when he says, and when he received honor and glory from God the Father, we heard the utterance uh, as was made to him from the majestic glory, referring to God, uh, God the Father. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we heard this utterance from heaven as they saw the appearance uh, of the transfiguration. And then later on, of course, you have the ultimate miracle that these apostles observed not just as individuals, but even as groups when they were together, the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 3 and following, if you want to look the reference up, says that Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, that he appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve as a group. He even at one point appeared to 500 people at one time, many of whom... Uh, many of whom remain until now and have not yet died. So, in other words, our faith is rooted in history. It's, 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 it's in real time through a real person, through real divine, miraculous events and power that show Jesus was the real thing. This really happened. And Peter is reminding us, as Scripture does, that they could rely upon it because they said, you know, even as we're writing, many of these eyewitnesses are still alive. Go ask them. Go ask them. Now, today, we don't have those eyewitnesses, but we have the Scriptures. So it raises a question that I wanted to just explore briefly with you before we go to our Q&A time, and that's this. So why is it reasonable for thinking people uh, in this day and age to believe the Bible is truth from God, that it's inspired? And I want to give you my just little short paradigm to help you think it through. I've actually typed out in your outline the big three ideas, so you don't even have to write them down. Number one, Jesus affirmed it. The fact that Jesus held a very high view of Scripture means a lot. Ninety-two times Jesus said, referring as he quoted Old Testament Scripture in stories, ninety-two times he said, thus saith the Lord. And he would quote some part of the Old Testament Scripture, affirming that God was the source of it. And although he was speaking of the Old Testament, not the New Testament, Jesus certainly affirms that this is God's M.O. This is God's way of communicating to his creation and to the people that he made in his image. This is God's way of communicating as he inspires, uh, he inspires godly, uh, godly individuals to write uh, divine scripture. And he affirms that. That's his M.O. 
Not only was that the MO in the Old Testament, Jesus himself in John 14 told his uh, apostle, the apostles, told his closest band of disciples, he says, look, when I'm gone, I promise you, my spirit will reveal to you and bring to mind my teaching so that you get it right, so that you can communicate that. And that's why the rest of the New Testament and the Gospels are sourced in these people who had eyewitness accounts and that were the closest people to Jesus. Jesus affirmed it. And if Jesus rose from the dead and proved he's the Son of God, if he had this high view of Scripture, then that's the number one reason that I do as well. Number two reason is I think the character of God anticipates it. You know, you know put it this way. If I start with the assumption that there is a God who exists and that that God is personal and loving, and that God even created mankind as spiritual beings to know and love Him, okay? If I start with those three assumptions, then it it just follows naturally that that God would communicate. I think it would be an unloving thing for God to to just uh, go through eternity and never really communicate or reveal Himself to us and just remain a mystery. You know, I think it, it makes sense, doesn't it? It just makes sense that... If I assume a loving, personal God, that God's going to communicate with me. I think the character of God uh, would would cause me to anticipate Scripture. Jesus affirms that the character of God anticipates it. Thirdly, the nature of the Bible itself, when it's examined, aligns with the idea that it kind of has what I would call the fingerprints of God on it. Now, where do I see this? Here, Here it is. Here's my short list. Number one, the incredible preservation of the Bible. Uh, indicates that perhaps God was behind preserving it. Kind of makes sense to me that if there's a if there's an all-powerful God that wants to communicate with mankind, He's not going to go to all the trouble to inspire uh, divine revelation given through people to reveal His story and then just kind of sit back and let them mess it up and it doesn't ever make it to you and me. So it makes sense. And when you study the history of the preservation of the Bible, it is extremely encouraging to see how much awesome evidence there is. In other words, we have a reliable, uh, we have a reliable text that can be constructed from all of, the, uh, all of the evidence and manuscripts that have been preserved, way more than any other piece of ancient history. Number two, the uncommon honesty of the Bible. Uh, the Bible is very unique. Ancient writers uh, of that era uh, never revealed the flaws and the failures of their heroes. Uh, and, when you, you know, and, and that's just a given because people don't like to do that. Uh, the Bible is unique in ancient literature as a book that seems very transparent about the flaws, failures, and sins of even its biggest heroes, you know, the Moses and, you know, Elijah's and the great prophets and, you know, and, and King David and, and Abraham, they all sinned and, and the Bible doesn't hide that. That's, that's common in today's culture. It was not common in the culture when the Bible was written. Again, it's just, it doesn't prove the Bible is inspired by God, but it's one more thing you would expect to see in a book inspired by God. Number three, the surprising accuracy of the Bible. And we don't have time to go into detail here, but the more you study it and align it with history and science, it really does stand the test of truth. Evidences of the scriptures, it's not a science book, but yet when it touches on areas of science, it's reliable. When it touches on areas of history, 
it continues to be proven accurate as archaeology uncovers more and more evidence behind it. Number four, surprising accuracy. Number four, predictive prophecy. Amazing prophecies in the Bible, unlike other religious books that actually predict things like where Jesus would be born. Not just what country, not just what region, but even what small, uh, inconspicuous little town. And why in the world would he be born there? And how he would be born, how he would die, details of his life. Prophecies of the Old Testament prophets, again, show the fingerprints of a God that knows and controls the future. Number five, the fifth reason I love the Bible and believe it to be God's word is the proven wisdom with hard truth. I think a lot of times the number one reason that skeptics of the Bible that I interact with reject it is usually not because that there is hardcore evidence that it's wrong, it's because they simply disagree with it, especially when it speaks to areas of our morality. When it challenges my mind and my morality, they, they reject it on that purposes. Let me give you a quote that I've used over the years. Here's something I assume to be true. If I am not God, and that's a given, amen? Anybody vote for my divinity? Raise your hand. Okay, if I'm not God, if you are not God, if we are not God, which is a given, and the Bible is the Word of God, I, I should expect it to challenge my mind and my morality. Because I know I'm not only not God, I'm a sinner. And, and sin kind of comes pretty easy to me. I mean, all i got to do is relax, let it happen. You know, the, you know and, and so, I, so don't be surprised when the Bible uh, says things that cause you to go, whoa, I, I don't know if I agree with that. I See, I, I'm glad the Bible doesn't agree with me. The day the Bible agreed completely with me on everything is the day I just lowered it to my standard. And that's not what you want to go. That's, that's not where you want to go for, for, for ultimate truth. So what do we learn? I think we've learned Peter had this passion for us to really know and never forget truth. That passion was linked in his deep conviction that it really was the inspired word of God. And then in verses 1 through 11, his challenge was that we would believe and live it. That we would live out the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel and all that he's done for us. And we summarized it with a simple diagram that we took two weeks to explain. And that is that we were in verse 1 through 4 grounded in the truth of who we are in Christ. And this is one thing that makes Seacoast a little different from some churches is the fact that we have a heavy emphasis on the grace of God and, and that living out of our identity in Jesus Christ, that we are, we are a new person with new potential, new power through His Spirit, and new promises to live by, uh, these give us everything we need for life and godliness, it says in verses 1 through 4. That we might share the divine nature, that we might be transformed to be more like Christ. It's all in that bottom foundational box. And then on that, as we walk in obedience and faith, we can develop and grow in our moral goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, which is the description of this life that Jesus wants for you and me. And then as we live that life, then he caps it off by saying, and as we supply these things and build our lives so they look like this instead of, in fact, remember the shack 
Here's the, here's the alternative, okay? Do you take all that Christ has done for you and settle for a life that would be illustrated with this? Or do you want the previous diagram? Go back there. See, I, I don't think this is what God wants to build. And He supplies all that you need to build this kind of a life as you walk with Him in simple faith and obedience. That's, I think, pretty cool. And then to cap it all off, He promises a grander entry into the eternal kingdom of Christ that we even have eternal rewards given in response to this. So it's an amazing truth. It's an amazing truth. What we want to do now, though, is instead of me teaching you more on this information, we want to give you a chance to text in questions. Because one thing I love about the Bible is we're not afraid of any questions here at Seacoast. We love to tackle tough questions, try to answer them, and uh, we thought it would be great to kind of take a little pause at this point, four and a half sermons into the series, and give you a chance to give us your questions. And because I don't want to be on the hot seat alone, I've asked Ryan to join me and uh, Steve Bennett to join me. They're going to grab a stool and a microphone and come on up, and um, we're going to have a a great time. So the text is text number is up there. If you want to text in a question, feel free to do so, and we will uh, see if we can shed some uh, some light on things this morning. So guys, welcome. So I'll monitor. So if I have the answer, I'll give it. If not, you're on. Okay. And if you don't have it, you pass to <laughs> Steve. All right. Let's bring up a question. First question. Second Peter 1:20 talks about. No prophecy of Scripture coming about by man's own interpretation. But as you read the Bible now, how do you know if you are interpreting God's Word correctly? Because, you know, guys, it does seem like we talk about the importance of interpreting Scripture. But yet this says it's not about our interpretation. So how would you explain that? All right. <laughs> well, I, I, I think, first of all, in the context of this, again, it, it's speaking about, uh, and the Greek scru- structure is actually really unique in this verse, but it's speaking about the prophets, literally it says nothing, uh, the prophets that brought forth a message from God, it never came from their own imagination, but it was something that was, uh, it said that it, it, they actually bear up the message that was uttered to them by God. Yeah, men so, moved to the Holy Spirit. Spoke. Yeah, so in this, it's not necessarily talking about private life. It's saying of the message, the revelation that we received, these prophets didn't make this up. Um, that it came, it wasn't a man-made creation. I think the second part of the question, though, is important, is when we're reading the Bible, we do advocate we want us as people as followers of christ to interpret scripture or to read scripture on our own and to apply it to life and i think i would just keep a few things in mind so that we know we're not putting man-made interpretation to it is really the question yeah it's always asked the question can i support this with use scripture interpret scripture so if you come up with a, a meaning from a passage make sure it's not just in one place um look and find the whole of scripture where else does it say that how do i understand that um, and, and run it by other ideas, other people. If you're the only one who's had this thought in the last 2,000 years. <laughs> I've had a few of those. You have, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what staff Not meetings smart. for. We usually strike them down. Right. And then, and That's right. <laughs> but, yeah, so I think those are a couple of things. Steve, anything to add for that? Yeah, I have one more thing to add. Uh, this is a, <clears throat> a simple one on the, to keep in mind, and that is uh, don't just read one Bible verse and, um, and take that as, you know, your your interpretation. 
look before and behind, look, read at least a paragraph, um, you know, see the whole thing in the context yeah. of what the author is attempting to communicate, and think, remember that he's writing to real people, and they had an idea of what he was talking about, and, um, and so you can step into that role too. So always look at context. Great. Good question. Next question. Next question. Here we go. Uh, thanks for not gloating about the West Virginia win. <laughs> uh, someone, someone has uh, a kid at Baylor. I really went out of my way because of my Baylor friends to not even bring it up. Yeah, yeah, 41-27. Uh, anyway. Yeah, um, yeah, but now we'll not go there. But God is good. Next week we'll probably get beat. So anyway. But isn't heaven enough? Uh, why should I strive for eternal rewards? It seems like works-based religion. So what do we do with these eternal rewards? So this is about three different questions about eternal rewards. Um, isn't heaven enough? How would you answer that? It was your sermon, not mine. <laughs> I'll take a pass at it, okay. <clears throat> Well, first of all, uh, I think heaven is incredible. And I think the promise of heaven, which is rooted only in the grace of God, we are saved by grace through faith plus nothing, lest any of us should boast. So the first thing is rejoice over the gift of eternal life provided by Christ. Um, the idea of striving for eternal rewards, uh, in one sense, I would say you shouldn't strive for eternal rewards. Uh, I think what we do is we strive to be more deeply in love with Jesus and to respond to his gift of heaven, respond to his gift of grace, forgiveness. You know, when someone gives me an incredible gift, I want to just say, wow, what can I do for you? And as we live lifestyles responding to, to God's unconditional love, uh, I think the really cool thing is it wasn't my idea. The scriptures teach that this is something that God does. It flows out of who he is. He, he loves to reward um, those who obey him and follow him and serve him out of the desire to glorify God and love Jesus. Um, but I think in a way, it's almost like if our motive is, man, I want to be like really rich in heaven. I want my house to be bigger than your house. Um, <laughs> then you probably aren't earning anything because your motives are wrong. You guys want to add to that? Yeah, I, I think the important piece there is your motivation. And, uh, and again, keep in mind, we, we have a very fallen, imperfected view, imperfect view of what rewards even are. All we know is that Scripture talks about there's some sort of, Jesus says, store treasures in heaven. And, and there's various verses that speak of some sort of crown of life or whatever these things are. We don't even know what that means. But we tend to right away live in a, a culture where it's, do I have more than you? Do you have more than me? Am I better than you? And keep in mind that that's not going to exist in heaven. Good reminder. So yeah. no matter what those are, we don't know what they are. Um, we do know that Jesus calls us to be faithful with the situations and the gifts that we are given. And I, I believe if we live out that, being faithful to the place that God's given us and in, in, in the gifts he's given us, and we're faithful with that, who knows what those rewards are, but... It, should we, hey, that would be a great thing, but don't think that you'll get to heaven and go like, oh, shoot, I beat Dale by one, you know, or something like that. It, that's not even going to be a question in our mind when we get there. So um, regardless of what that looks like, the point is, are we living for something bigger? Are we living for eternity? 
Are we seeking after Christ? That's the motivation. Yeah. And let God figure out how that's going to work in eternity, and you'll be okay yeah. when you get there. But also don't think, well, all I need to do is get in. That's all I want. Because we're missing out on the life that Christ has for us. And I think that's the bigger issue, too. Yeah. Steve, what would you add to that? Yeah, I have one more. Um, I think of the question behind this question, and that is, what do we mean by rewards? And, of course, uh, you know, these are spiritual things. The scripture uses concrete language and figurative ways to try to illustrate some spiritual truth. And, um, and so, you know, I've thought about this and wonder, well, what is it that you can't actually take with you when you, when you die? What is it that we take with us? Um, Paul gives us a hint in one of his letters to Timothy. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain, not only for this life, but also for the life to come. That indicates to me that there are some qualities of character that we are building right now according to your choices, your habits, um, how you respond and trust to Christ, the stresses that you're undergoing, the, the problems, the tragedies, the, you know, everything that's going on in your life is doing something to your soul. And that soul you take with you. That is you. And so I imagine that, uh, that there are going to be in heaven uh, some people that have endured great hardship and to the end uh, for Christ uh, who have great capacity for trust and for worship and for honoring Christ more than I have. And I think that I will admire their rewards when I'm, when I'm in heaven because they were able to to have something built into their soul that is far greater than I have had opportunity to yeah. so far. Yeah. And that, that makes a lot of sense to me, rather than thinking, well, you know, jewels and gold and things that are material worth to us now. It, the value system is different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that our ability to even give those rewards back to Christ, mm-hmm. cast our crowns at his feet, mm-hmm. may even indicate... The com- Different capacities for service. You know, how do, uh, how do political candidates reward their uh, people who help them achieve office nowadays? Well, it's by giving them more th- things to do. And uh, we'll not be just sitting around um, playing harps in heaven. There will be meaningful things to do that are worthwhile. And I think the, uh, the ability to serve even more Christ and his kingdom in heaven will be a direct result of the choices and the, um, yeah. and the opportunities that we right. have here. Yeah, in Revelation 4.10 is one passage that talks about at least some of the elders taking these crowns and using them in worship to cast at the feet of Jesus in worship. So you know, there's a variety of ways that we might use these rewards. Uh, but I think the key thing that helps me the most with this is to realize... If there's no sin in heaven, there's no envy, there's no jealousy, there's no discontentment, there's no like, I don't think it's fair that they got this and I didn't. And if you take all that away, we rejoice together as we spend eternity with Christ. And, but we'll have different roles. We have different roles right now in the kingdom and we'll have different roles in eternity. But it'll all be uh, a joy, be a joy. That's a great set of questions. Okay, give me another one.
Can you can you gloat about Kansas State's win over Oklahoma? <clears throat> yes, I, I found great joy in that. I, and now and I know who wrote the question. So <laughs> it's the man with the purple tie right on the front right here. Yes, okay, I was proud of K State. Yeah, and how many ways has it been proven that the scriptures are are accurate? Um, Steve, why don't you lead off on that one? How would you? What would you add? We talked a little bit about that in the sermon, but what would you add? Yeah, this is. Um... You know, it depends on what you mean by proof. There are different kinds of proof. You know, scientific, you do an experiment, you <clears throat> count on the regular, um, uh, you know, the regularity of nature and so forth. Uh, legal proof is something different uh, in a court of law. And you, you, you offer evidence that, um, that tries to demonstrate something beyond a reasonable doubt. And there are even, well, I don't want to weasel out of this, but let me just say that uh, I have confidence in Scripture because of a cumulative circumstantial case. Now, circumstantial evidence does not mean that it's, um, you know, a lower um, discountable type of, type of evidence. Um, cold cases, all cold cases in our legal system are um, adjudicated on the basis of circumstantial evidence. And very strong cases can be made on that basis. And therefore, I think a very strong case can be made for the, um, for the authenticity, the authority, and the reliability of Scripture. Now, the way I do it is similar to the way Dale outlined. I start with Jesus. Um, Jesus said <laughs> that, the, uh, that the Old Testament Scriptures are accurate. I believe them. Um, I believe that what Jesus had to say was accurate. Why? Because he rose from the dead. Well, why do I think that he rose from the dead? Well, because of the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Why do I think that, that the eyewitness testimony that we have is accurate? Well, we have good reason to believe because of the number of manuscripts that we have reliable recording of what people actually wrote, and it was recorded early. Well, lots of both supporters and opponents were around, let's say within decades of, of Jesus' death. Well, why would I think that they're written early? Well, I'm, I'm going very quickly on my cumulative case here. Look at the book of Acts. Um, the best explanation for the ending of the book of Acts is that the time had run out on what Luke was recording, about AD 62 because it was in the middle of Paul's first imprisonment. Well, Luke was written before Acts. He tells us this. Mm -hmm. um, it, uh, Luke also quotes from Matthew and Mark, so they must have been written earlier than that. So now we're getting mid-50s, early 50s, maybe even late 40s. So that's how we reason just from the evidence that we have. Then you get the letters of Paul, who um, Paul in... Um, I think it's First uh, Timothy, actually quotes from the book of Luke. And so we have evidence from Paul's writings where he calls this quotation scripture. So he's affirming Luke's gospel as scripture. He's affirming the early dating of Luke's gospel. Uh, Peter, in his second letter, affirms um, Paul's writing as scripture. And so we've got this whole cumulative case that I've just given you a small part of. But uh, suffice it to say that when it all kind of boils down, I think we have very good reason to believe that 
Jesus was a historical figure. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He rose from the dead. Uh, He um, had many people claim to have seen him after his resurrection. We have the remarkable conversions of the Apostle Paul and of Jesus' half-brother James, and spreading throughout the entire Roman Empire before the end of the first century of Christianity. Um, Didn't even get into the non-Christian sources that affirm all this. So there is a a lot of evidence for our faith. Our faith is not a faith where you have to turn your brain off and just say, well, I'm just going to leap off a cliff and believe it because I just need to believe something. Um, uh, I think uh, it's always encouraged me to see that we as Christians can keep your brain turned on. Uh, But it is still, everyone has to choose. It is a step of faith to believe. This is the word of God. Um, The evidence is there. And test it. Test it to be true. And, and keep in mind, just one, one little comment on that. Keep in mind, too, as Steve did mention, it's a, a cumulative kind of argument. So don't base, don't go in, uh, you know, if you are a skeptic or you have friends who are or, or whatever, with just one point. Um, because any one point stand alone, you could probably poke holes in it. And uh, that's what lawyers do in their cases anyway. So that's why there's a lot of different angles right. that we take. What's your favorite book? Steve or Ryan, the, if, if, if they wanted to study this more deeply, what would be a book you'd recommend? Oh, man. You know, Lee Strobel's Case 4 series, I think, is a real accessible one. It's also he's got the Case for Christ, which um, kind of goes over a lot of the outline that I, that I just mentioned. Case for Faith, which is more uh, philosophical objections to Christianity. He's got a Case for Creator. He's got a case for the real Jesus, which is, uh, you know, addressing skeptics' objections to yeah. what we think of Jesus. So the reason I like it is because it's written for us. You know, it's not written for scholars. It's written for regular people. And it, um, it quotes, it does interviews with uh, the real guys who are on the cutting edge of scholarship. Yeah. But he brings it down to where we can handle it. It's a series by Lee Strobel. Yep. Excellent. Okay, next question. See if there's another football lead-in, but let's go. <laughs> After experiencing times of spiritual dryness, how does one transition into loving God again when one feels defiant, upset towards him, uh, when one is too busy all the time? To me, uh, it begins by going back to the truths that are talked about in verses 1 through 11 of, first, of, first, of Second Peter. Uh, I think when I go back to focus on the grace of God and the love of God and what he did for me, that he loved me enough to die for me, um, to me that's what kind of grounds me. Um, because if I just look at the circumstances in my life, it can become dry or I can become angry toward God because I don't understand why he's not doing what I want him to do, that it seems logical for him to do. And so for me, it's grounded in uh, a faith that a loving Heavenly Father who loved me enough to send his son to die for me. It's huge. And that's one reason why I think the practice of communion once a month needs to be not just a religious ritual, but a time to just constantly keep coming back to who was Jesus, what did he do for me on the cross, and then realizing, wow, I'm a new person in Christ, and then living out of that, that new identity. 
What about the busyness side of this question especially? Or what do you want to add to well, that? Well, I, I think I could maybe add to it or just take a different angle, and this is a non-biblical <laughs> angle on it. But I think all of us have, for the sake of just making it make sense, we kind of all have different spiritual pathways that help us feel connected to God. And I'm not trying to over-spiritualize or make it like some weird moment. But for some of you, you really respond well to worship and to music. And that makes something inside comes alive for whatever reason. Some of you, it, it might be just really studying and diving into Scripture and spending hours. I know people who, when they don't have the time to do that, they start to feel dry inside. And when they can get away and just read for hours, they're like, oh, it come alive. Some of you, it's service. It's going out and doing something in the name of Christ and actually serving people. There's, there's all these different avenues. And I would say there are times in life, and first of all, this is normal. Okay, This doesn't mean that Jesus yeah, left you. Um, we all go through that. Um, even when you work in a church, you go through that. Even when we're paid to be Christians, we do that, okay? <laughs> but, so, but what I would argue for you is, is, is one, don't give up. Yeah. And two, find what is the thing that makes you really come alive. If it is worship, throw some worship music on when you're in the car. Get away. Fill your mind with something like that. Um, if it, some, of you might, some of you, it's getting out in nature. Ask yourself, when's the last time you went up in the mountains and got away from people? And just reconnected. So we all. This is non-biblical, by the way, but I think it works. Um, so find those things for you that you feel like, yeah, those are moments when I know I feel something different. And, and and don't forget, I mean, God created this world, and He created us in His image, and He created creation. And so some of you, it's okay to be out on a surfboard with the sunset and dolphins and be like, now I know God's real. Yeah. That's okay. Well, and actually, that is biblical. Okay. So well, it I'm, is, I'll, but I'll I'm just trying to, you, you know, know. You know, because Scripture <laughs> talks about how creation declares the glory of right. God. So I just got you off the hook. I, I think, <laughs> I, no, I think it is. There is biblical support to what Ryan is sh- sharing as well. That we do uh, different things nurture our 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 soul. We have time for one more question. Can I, as the, as can the, I mention two practical things on that? Yes, we have no more time for questions. Yeah. But that's all. Right. <laughs> Go, Steve, From experience, you're when you're really feeling down and discouraged. And uh, in despairing, read the Psalms because there's an emotional connection with a number of the Psalms. Read Psalm 139, read Psalm 103. Yeah. And when you're in the nature, pray out loud. Hmm. Great, great practical tips. You know, as the band comes up, throw up one more question. Maybe we can give it a quick, quick answer as the band comes to lead us in a closing, closing song. What are the precious promises that allow us to participate in the divine nature and escape worldly corruption? Yeah, this comes from verse 1 through 4 where he says that he has given us precious, magnificent promises by which we, we become partakers of the divine nature. Uh, I think it's the whole of the gospel. I think it's the whole of, of understanding the incredible promises of who God is and how he loves us and what he did for us and the resources he's provided by his spirit that lives in us, that we can abide in Christ and be promised fruit. I think it's the all. This is where I think we have to go deep in the word and become students of scripture and and learn all that it means to be in Christ and to have him living in you. Uh, The incredible promises of God's word, I think, empower, empower Christian living. All right, let's bring a question up, and we'll start tackling these. Second Peter 1.20 talks about no prophecy of Scripture coming about by man's interpretation. 
Uh, as you read the Bible now, how do you know if you are interpreting God's word correctly? You know, because this was a bit of a puzzle when I first read this verse. It says, no scripture is a part of man's interpretation. But yet we often talk about the importance of correctly interpreting scripture. So, you know, Ryan, this was your sermon, so answer. <laughs> Yeah, there's really two issues here. One is the actual text and what it's referring to. Um, In this, Peter's writing as an affirmation of saying that the prophecies that have led to this point, and the Greek wording is really unique. It's only worded this way once, and it's here. But it's really um, the prophets bear, they kind of carried the message that was uttered from God, and it was no invention, it would say, of their own. It was nothing that they could come up with on their own. So... When, when Peter is speaking of all the scriptures that are pointing to the fulfillment in Christ, he's saying this is not invented by man. So, uh, so you can trust uh, the message you've heard. Uh, the ex, the, I think the part of the question there that is asked on the other side, which is more practical, is we tell you all the time, hey, spend time in the Word of God throughout the week and, and let's become people who learn to apply that. So the question is, how do we know that we are not incorrectly interpreting or making man's interpretation into scripture, which is a little different than what that passage is referring to. So give us a couple tips real quick. A couple that I would, and then Steve will give the uh, some more. <laughs> well, I just think always interpret scripture with scripture. So don't let a verse stand alone and just stay there. If you read something and you want to base you know, a life theology on it, make sure you look and say, what does that verse mean in light of its context or in light of other pieces in scripture? What do they teach? So always um, interpret with Scripture with Scripture. If you find yourself with a unique interpretation that no one has come to in the last 2,000 years, right? Yeah, you might be wrong. <laughs> Just saying. So. Yeah, Steve, Anything what would you add? add to that? Well, nothing to add to that, except uh, <laughs> every once in a while, uh, Seacoast offers special classes. And uh, this past summer, David Nichols taught a several-week series on how to interpret the Bible. Uh, various principles on understanding different genres of scripture and so forth. So I would encourage you to just remain alert, uh, review your worship folder, and every so often we have these special uh, electives come up that you can take advantage of. Yeah, in fact, one of them right now is how to read the Bible. Is being This will probably be t- touched on as uh, Noel and Denise uh, are teaching a class right now that, uh, that we're into. Uh, we really want you to know how to handle the word. The final tip I would give is always look at the context. Uh, the biggest mistakes that most people make interpreting scripture is when they pull a verse out and just try to try to understand it in isolation. Always read what comes before it, what comes after it, uh, to make sure that you're not mis, misapplying it. Great question. Let's get another one, Paige. Are there other documents uh, recording what Jesus did, uh, say, beyond the Gospels? Yes. Yeah, okay, good. Next question. <laughs> uh, Steve, explain this a little bit. And, and better, handle that one? yeah, and why do we have the ones that we have? Why do we emphasize those? Well, of course, the, uh, the primary documents that we have about Jesus directly are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And we have good reasons for believing that they're authentic, that they were written by credible eyewitnesses, that they were written early. Um, But that's not all that we have. We have uh, the letters of the apostles, which refer to things that Jesus did. In fact, we just read some of it today in uh, Peter's second letter, his recounting of of some experiences that he had with Jesus. Um, But we also have 
other sources. Uh, we have non-Christian sources, Roman historians like uh, Tacitus and Suetonius. Uh, they didn't uh, record in detail everything that Jesus did, but they do record some things, and we can draw some conclusions based on their testimony about um, Jesus and his uh, first century activities, mainly his death um, and, and the effects that he had on the people around him. We have, um, uh, I think, Pliny, who was a, a Roman governor who uh, discussed the Christians after Jesus and what they were doing in the first century. Uh, we have uh, Jewish sources. Uh, the Talmud is an interesting one, which is a collection of teaching by the rabbis uh, that affirmed that Jesus existed and that he worked miracles. They just disagreed why he was able to do that. They attributed to, uh, to sources other than God. Right. But, uh, but all these are part of the circumstantial case that we have that uh, says, oh yeah, there's a, there's a lot of evidence out there that all kind of points in the same direction to the authenticity of the record that we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Good. Another question. A science question. Here we go. Is the theory of evolution inconsistent with the teachings of the Bible? Okay. <laughs> Steve, you're our, you're our expert on this. <laughs> I think one of the, I'll let Steve give the details, but one of the things that this has fascinated me ever since I was in high school and college and it's been so encouraging to me that the more that I've studied the book of Genesis, what I've found is, number one, Genesis is not a science book. Uh, it's, it's, it's written to tell us the great truth that God created us and that God created this universe. And it didn't just happen by chance. Uh, and when I began to understand that, uh, I began to see that, wow, you know, the scriptures uh, actually have no conflict, in my opinion, with science. And in some ways, science actually affirms the reality. Steve does a lot of work. Steve teaches. What The course you teach is at um, Horizon. Is the Give yeah. us a little background on what you teach and then your take on this question. Okay, so the re, you're, some of you are wondering, why is that guy up there? Okay, so, so I actually teach a course in Christian apologetics for Horizon University, which is a small college in, in San Diego. And so I've, um, I've gone around some of these issues before, and I guess that's why, uh, why I'm up here. Um, as far as the science, science issue, um, you know, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his, his handiwork. Uh, Romans chapter 1, Paul makes an extended argument about why what we view in nature tells us some things that are true about God, and you don't need special revelation for it. Uh, so there's two ways that God reveals himself to us. One is through the scripture. It's called special revelation. Through the person of Jesus Christ is another one, the incarnation, but also through nature. Mm -hmm. And if we believe that God is telling us the truth through nature, I think that we have good reasons for taking it seriously and doing scientific investigation. In fact, without getting uh, too far off into the weeds, you know, it's been argued that the the basis of modern science is actually the Christian worldview, and that's the reason why modern science actually was able to get going in West, Western Europe uh, is because of the Christian worldview. So when it comes to Genesis, what do we do with that? Well, let me just say that there are more than one 
view on how Genesis should be interpreted. And I think that we need a little bit of humility when we approach uh, specialized interpretations to realize that there are sincere Bible-believing um, Christians that hold different views on how Genesis chapters 1 through 3 should be interpreted. And so, you know, how does it mesh with all of Scripture rather than just taking this in isolation? And how does it fit in with the true things that we observe in nature? Um, this, is, uh, this is more than we can handle in a soundbite right here, but pay attention. Like I say, we'll probably uh, deal with this again uh, in a special class. And if you're of college age, come to um, my house tonight because uh, uh, while Joe is gone, uh, Ellen and I are hosting the college group and you're able to address is in your program. Come on over because this is actually the topic that we'll be starting with tonight of uh, dealing with these right. questions. Anything you want to add? No, I, I, again, it's not everything we can cover here, but I would say the, the, you know, sometimes you can look at Scripture and think that God was trying, you know, here, what is the point of Scripture? And it's saying we have a creator God who's in control of all. How that worked out, you know, we don't know exactly how it all worked out. I think there's reasons, um, you know, certain, there's big, definitely big questions with macroevolution and things like that, but again, not to address here this morning. But the important thing is, does, did God create? Are there certain things that are consistent in Scripture? And, and uh, the Bible wants us to know there is a creator God who's in control. And however that works out, I think, is more important. than Right, how. right. And there are a lot of very, very uh, sharp leading scientists um, who, as they've looked at the Scriptures and looked at science, science actually drives them back to their faith, uh, not away from it. Because they recognize that when you see the incredible detailed design of the universe and the design of something even as simple as uh, the human eye and what it takes for that to actually do what it does so that you can see me right now. Uh, the idea that that would evolve without divine in intervention and guidance becomes an incredible leap of faith to, uh, to, to believe that. So uh, where, you, where you find incredible design uh, even science would say, look for a designer, uh, because it doesn't bear the mark of accident. It bears the mark of, uh, of God's design. Next question. Good one. These are good. Hard. Question for Dale. <laughs> okay. What could Baylor have done differently yesterday? I did not text that in. Okay. Well, okay. They could have completed some passes. Yeah, let's just, let's just roll on. But yeah, it was uh, 41-27, Mountaineers won. But anyway, here we go. Next question. How does this idea of earning eternal rewards, maybe that's what Baylor needed, but how does this idea of earning eternal rewards fit with grace and God supplying all that we need? Uh, let me take a pass at that since it was my sermon. It was yours. Yeah, yeah. it's all you. Yeah, this, uh, the message on eternal rewards, I think, kind of rattled some of you because you said, wow, I've never heard this taught. And uh, so let me, I think the summary I would give is this. Number one. We are saved by the grace of God alone. By grace we are saved through faith. That not of ourselves, it's the gift of God. Not, a, not as a result of anything we do, lest any of us has a reason to, to boast. So it's God's grace that gives us eternal life as a gift. So heaven is a gift. But yet in Scripture, in many, many places, God talks about how as we live a life of obedience, as we live a life... Uh, of faith as we live a life 
building this type of life described in that house, that Second Peter says that as you, as, you, uh, as you live this life as a steward of what God has entrusted to you, um, then God promises a grand entrance into his eternal kingdom. Other passages that we looked at two weeks ago, you can go back and listen to the sermon, talk about this, this, uh, the fact that all of us will be unique in heaven. And part of our uniqueness will be eternal rewards that are given to us. That doesn't violate grace. It just simply says that God wants us to know that, wow, he's also going to reward those who walk in faith and obedience and serve him. That there are eternal rewards. Now, what do we do with those rewards? Some of those, uh, Revelation 4.10 says some of those, like crowns, uses the metaphor of crowns, and it says they'll be cast at the feet of Jesus in worship. Because face it, any, any quote, rewards that we earn, uh, we, if it wasn't for Christ and what he did, we wouldn't even be able to do that. So I think one is our, our heart will be to use them in worship of Christ. But there are other aspects of these rewards that Scripture say will go along with us in eternity. Um, Steve, uh, you mentioned one of them over at my house when we were talking about this after the sermon, um, about how it may affect the way we serve Christ. Could you talk about that a little bit? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I've uh, puzzled over this and, and thought, well, rewards, you know, we tend to think of that in material terms, but the Bible uses lots of metaphors to try to communicate spiritual reality in physical ways that we can, that we can grasp. And so uh, the crown, for instance, that Dale just mentioned, uh, that the 24 elders cast at the feet of, of, of the throne, um, could be thought of as a symbol of authority. You know, makes sense. And so how does that fit in with rewards in heaven? Well, here's a, uh, an idea that's been helpful to me, and actually someone after first service told me it was very helpful to him too, so maybe it's worth thinking about. Roll with it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Um, Paul tells us in, um, in one of his letters to Timothy that godliness with contentment is great gain, not only for this life but also for the life to come. So what is it that we can take with us into the life to come? Uh, it isn't anything that we accumulate in our bank accounts, but um, we are not just our bodies, we are souls as well. And so the, uh, the aspects of character that are that is being developed by our experiences, by our choices, by our how we respond to stress, how we trust God in certain circumstances, I believe that that causes changes in, in us that allow us to serve in a different capacity than if they weren't there. And so just take the, the crowns as an example. <clears throat> the... Um, the 24 elders with their crowns of authority, uh, they, let's just say, served Christ on earth. Uh, we're told that, uh, that they were martyred. They, went, they paid the full extent. They served him in ways that expanded their capacity for future service in the kingdom, in the eternal kingdom, and offered that crown, that service back to him, not as a way of, of uh, discarding it, but as a way of offering further service. And we even see that uh, in, in human terms. Uh, when we think of a political campaign and, and a team of people that is 
trying to get somebody elected into a position of authority. What's the reward that that new, newly elected candidate gives to his supporters? Well, the ones that are closest to him that actually have worked hard to um, use their skills and develop their skills to have them. He gives them positions of service. And that makes the most sense to me, is that the, uh, the kind of soul growth that we're able to experience here and that we allow Christ to affect in us uh, by trusting him and enduring some of the trials that come by, all these combine to change us in ways that make us even more suitable and more capable of mm. serving him and give us more capacity for worship and for appreciation and for love in the future kingdom. Mm. Ryan? Yeah, I, I would just say it's also important to know that everyone, because I think the tension when you think of this is it just doesn't feel right. I don't know if, if you sense that. Like, it doesn't seem like we'll get to heaven and I'll look over and say, seriously, Dale got that much and I didn't? What's going on? Yeah, it's not fair. And, and, and you, have to, um, you have to know that, one, we're looking at this, this idea through context of a fallen state and through sin anyway. And, and so when we're looking at it, we're, we're still using our paradigm and our framework that is all based on judging and who's better and who's, you know, where I fit. We can't erase that from our fallen human state. This is how we look. So the tension comes when we think of it in terms of life now. And, and know that that is erased when we're face-to-face with our Savior. So that's different. Um, and, and so I think if we just keep that in mind. The other thing is this. Some people say, well, shouldn't heaven or shouldn't just following Jesus be enough? And, and I would say, yes, our motivation isn't so that we earn some sort of reward that probably is nothing like what we can consider. Um, it's, do we want to live following Christ and, and now? And, and some of it is, let's not get so caught up in what happens after we die that we forget that we're called to bring the kingdom of God now here on earth too. And, and it's not just about waiting. You know, Christianity is not about waiting yeah. for death. Yeah. Um, it will be better, but we have a life to live, and Jesus said, bring the kingdom of God now. So, I, I think that the thing that helped me the most with this was when my wife actually gave me some good input on this. And Becky said, hey, keep in mind that when we're in heaven, because uh, Scripture teaches we're all going to be different. There will be different levels of rewards that all of us will have based on how we live our life on earth. And that's, I think that's clearly taught by Jesus. But in heaven, we'll have no envy, no, no sin. So we'll never be envious or jealous. We'll never have a thought like, well, that's not fair, because we'll get it. And we'll rejoice together and rejoice in each other. And, and in the fact that some people will be different than me in heaven, and maybe they have more or less rewards, that's not going to cause me to be proud, and it's not going to cause them to be jealous. Because we're going to walk in unity and love like we've never done it before. So... Um, live with the motive to love Christ, follow Christ, serve Christ out of love. And then let God take care of what he does in the reward category. That would be my advice. But time for one more question, and we'll wrap up. As the band comes up, who created God? Okay, that's easy. Steve, you're my man on this one. Who created God? No one. It presumes that God is one of those things in the category of created things, which is, which is wrong. So this is actually a category error if we're talking about logic. That boy is um, wicked smart. Again, yeah, yeah. again, good. So, Anyone? Um, <laughs> yeah. So God is the uncreated 
the uncreated creator. Yeah. And actually, back to science, the fact that science, I think, often says that nothing... Um, how's I say it, Steve? I, uh, I shouldn't have started down this road. <laughs> <clears throat> that nothing comes from nothing, right? I mean, you know, but the reality is there has to be a first cause. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything that we know, even in science, points to this point in time in which suddenly uh, creation burst onto the scene. And there's a lot of good evidence for the fact there has to be something outside of creation or creation couldn't exist. Okay, so the physical world, physical universe came into existence. And it makes sense to say, well, whatever comes into existence must have been caused. But uh, God is not of that category of things that came into existence. Okay. By definition. Hey, great questions. Thank you so much. Let me pray. Father God, thanks for the, these brothers. Thanks for Ryan and Steve and the chance to just together seek to answer real questions that we have about our faith. I pray as we continue to study Second Peter next week and start looking at the source of, uh, of untruth, that you continue to deepen our roots, deepen our understanding of Christ, deepen our roots in truth, that we might live it. In Christ's name, we worship you now. Amen. Let's stand and join together in one closing song, huh? Let's sing to the Lord as he deserves.